going to read um, some of the uh, story about the spies. Not as um, exciting as some spy stories you've uh, read, no doubt, but in its, own, in its own way, pretty exciting. Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of their ancestral tribes, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them leading men among the Israelites. And jumping down to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Go up there into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land they live in is good or bad, whether the towns they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be bold, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the season of the first, first ripe grapes. Grapes. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Uh, second half of verse 10. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For in your might you brought up this people from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people all at one time, then the nations who have heard about you will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. And now, therefore... Let the power of the Lord be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Forgive the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I do forgive, just as you have asked. Nevertheless, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the people who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have tested me these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their ancestors. None of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me wholeheartedly, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way, by the way to the Red Sea. I take it back. It's the most exciting of stories, isn't it? No, we're all asleep. It's too hot. It's the end of the fourth week. We're overwhelmed. Things about that story that strikes you. Strike you. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that, because I didn't see it the first time when I read it, but that he says that they have disobeyed him and tested him ten times. <laughs> I knew that it was a lot that they had said, why are we not in Egypt still? But ten times is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of fits with the idea, okay, the Lord, you can be slow to anger, um, but eventually you run out of patience. Eventually, God decides, that's it. You can't, you, I don't know, I've never tried to count the ten, whether there have been ten stories about these kind of rebellions, but I wouldn't want to be literalistic about the ten. You know, as if, um, okay, I'll just count up the ways in which I am um, complaining about God, and I'll stop when I get to number nine, because it might not work. Mm-hmm. One thing that struck me, I guess, in terms of sort of what we talked about before of God choosing to be part of relationship with Israel, it just really struck me how when Moses is telling him, oh, you know, your reputation's going to be ruined if you go through with you know, killing those people. It's like, you know, God really sort of put his name at stake, you know, really risked mm. by That's, choosing yeah. to identify with Israel. Yeah. God, God made himself vulnerable by identifying with Israel. I mean, like he does with us, for goodness sake. You go around wearing the label Christian. Woo! Yeah. I, I thought you were going to go somewhere else, because there's another kind, sort of vulnerability here, isn't there, or being at disposal, because this very fact that God is willing to be persuaded by Moses is another uh, example of the way in which God... Um, makes himself um, vulnerable, uh, puts himself in the position 
as, as if God is the servant and Moses is the master. Uh, I was thinking earlier today about one of those passages where in Isaiah God talks about always making himself available. Opening, uh, that he's, he's been holding his hands out to Israel and they won't respond. And that's back to front. It's supposed to be the servant who's available to the master. The servant who puts his hand out to um, be willing to serve and, and God turns that on its head. Mm-hmm. He doesn't not support them, does he? Yeah. He doesn't not support them or support them. No, right, right. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, hmm. I wonder if that's a kind of encouragement to... I mean, the, to, the likes of um, Joshua and Caleb didn't just wait for Moses to speak... They, they themselves got involved. Um, yeah. Sorry, we... I found it interesting that he says, I do forgive, and then goes on to punish them anyway. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because I usually think of forgiveness as then you don't get punished. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. There are several examples. I mean, an, an, uh, an example a bit like that is when, um, after the, the Bathsheba-Uriah affair, um, David asks for God's forgiveness, um, and God grants it, but then still punishes him. So there's a kind of, um, there can be a, um, it's, it's not casting the people off, it's, it's uh, in that sense, um, but it's, I mentioned, didn't I, the other day, about the fact that the, the Hebrew word that's translated forgive usually um, is the word that usually means to carry. Um, and so he's going to carry on carrying this people, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't, um, leave out, that doesn't exclude the possibility um, of disciplining them. And again, again, I suppose that's the same as parents and children, isn't it? You, you carry on forgiving, you carry on carrying. Um, you don't throw the children out, but it doesn't mean that you don't discipline. Mm-hmm. I, just, I find it interesting that Caleb Alone's discussed early towards the end of your reading there. I mm. know that he talks about Joshua later. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know of any significance about it. Um, no, I don't know. Um, as a, as a, as a, I'm sure there are 17 scholarly theories about it. Uh, so here's number 18. Uh, I mean, just to, as it were, a, a kind of guess that, that if the story, if, as in most of these stories are self-contained, they would stand on their own. You can imagine the story being told on its own. Like the in individual stories within the Gospels about healings and so on. And then when the, a gosp the Gospel is written or when the Torah is put together, the stories are put into a sequence. Um, and um, this story on its own would work with only reference to Caleb but maybe once you put this story in the context of not only the Torah, but the Torah that leads into Joshua, you've kind of got interested in Joshua because he's, he's the guy who's actually going to lead them in. Uh, and so whether 
whether Joshua is put back in the story because as somebody who reads the whole story, you're likely to want to, well, okay, where was Joshua that day? Um, and, and that might explain uh, why Caleb is mentioned um, at some uh, points and Joshua at some others. But that's just off the top of my head. It's probably totally wrong. Um, the, the faithfulness of God, this story uh, illustrates the faithfulness of God in the sense that God is committed to his people forever. It's quite possible for a particular generation uh, to, to lose their place in the story, but God carries on being committed to the people as a whole. Faithful one, so unchanging, Ageless one, you're my rock of peace. Lord of all, I depend on you, and I call out to you again and again. I call out to you again and again. You are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. Well, that's obviously become an amazingly ancient song, which none of you know. But now you do, so we'll sing it again, but this time we'll sing it as we, as a a song that we sing as the people of God. Faithful one, so unchanging, ageless one, you're our rock of peace. Lord of all, we depend on you. And we call out to you again and again. We call out to you again and again. You are our rock in times of trouble. You lift us up when we fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. Our hope is in you alone. Father, as your people, our hope is in you alone, not least because we fail and we would get cast off generation after generation were it not for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can appeal to that faithfulness in the way that Moses did. And we thank you that you respond to that appeal. We ask you to be with us this evening and once more give us some more understanding in these, in, in these scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to begin this evening by playing you the other chunk of that um, lecture by Walter Brueggemann. But while I'm trying to make this thing work, uh, let me draw your attention to... The, 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 the three pages in the syllabus before this evening's schedule which, about Leviticus, which I didn't get a chance to say something about last time, the, the two pages immediately before the schedule for tonight 
are a, an article by Rob Bell, who's a Fuller alum, who is the um, pastor at the Mars Hill Bible Church in somewhere or other, uh, about the, the, uh, the, the year he spent preaching on Leviticus. Uh, and if you think preaching on Leviticus is impossible, well, just read those two pages. Uh, and then the page before that is me reflecting on when in Leviticus 19 it says, Be holy as I am holy. Be like me. Uh, it made me think back over Genesis through to the middle of Leviticus, the story so far, and ask, what is God like? Uh, what, is, what is the picture of God that we've seen so far suggest to us as what it means for us to be like God? Uh, now, let us see what happens. Oh, no, don't do that yet. Nobody in Israel ever suggested that you don't have to keep all the 
about why in the evening you've got this enormous corpus in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the Priestly Code and the Holiness Code and Ezekiel. It's because they had to find some way through all the business of the non-negotiable. If, if they were really flatly, singularly non-negotiable, you would need all that little corpus. Let me take the case. Maybe it's a kind of a safe case. But Moses said, or God said, whoever said, or J or E or someone, <laughs> it is written. <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Fair enough. And Moses said, I'll tell you why. Because God made heavens and earth and rested. Rooted in creation. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses takes another run at it. Right, you ought to keep the commandment, but let me get really why. <laughs> because it's really an Exodus festival, and that's the one day every week when you will remember that you were slaves, and now you are free, and you'll let your servants rest like you. And the world says that the Sabbath is the day of eschatological equality of masters and slaves. It's different. Then you're all right. But if you track the Sabbath on through, in Amos, Amos 8, Amos chides people, business people, for their frantic concern to get the Sabbath over with so they can start opening the market and start cheating people. And Amos understands that the Sabbath is really a guard for weak people against strong, abusive people. That's an interpretive angle. And then when you read on the third Isaiah and Isaiah 56, they have a discussion about whether to let eunuchs and foreigners into church. It's astonishing that that court says that the only two things you've got to do to let these outsiders in is they've got to keep coming and they've got to keep more interpretation, because what Third Isaiah does on our common digging is he takes that commandment of Moses and he shows how it is oddly useful in a post-exilic community. And then you know that if you run on toward Mark 3, Jesus has some things to say about the Sabbath because he gets criticized for healing on the Sabbath. And then he gives this nice serial conclusion that human persons are not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for human What I want to suggest to you about that, and you can think of some others, is that the Bible is committed to the Sabbath, but is engaged in ongoing ethical reflection about what precisely the Sabbath ought to mean. That's not the community voting on the Sabbath, but interpretation is always a vote about whether it means this or this. Now I think that the church has a lot to answer for in pretending that its ethical discourse 
is simply a set of non-negotiable conclusions. I'm not wanting to say that the Bible practices situation ethics, but what the Bible does show us is that the deepest commands of God must always be interpreted if they are to have any credibility. To be sure, when you say they must be interpreted, somebody can easily say, you are really trying to relativize to get out of it, aren't you? So the dangers on the one hand are an absolutism that makes them irrelevant, or a relativism that holds them so loosely that they do not seem to matter. And what we have to help people in the church see is that on the ethical issues that we feel most strongly about, people on every side of the question have already engaged in enormous interpretation to arrive at the ethical commitment they've made. And I suggest that what we need to do is to let that process of interpretation become visible and communal so that we have to take responsibility for the interpretations that we are doing of God's commands. That leads me to think about covenant law, that the important thing about the Bible and ethics is that you got to keep the conversation going. Everybody knows that about teenagers. You can't make any pronouncements, but blessed are you if you can keep the conversation going. <laughs> and in fact, that's how we live our ethical life anyway. Very rarely do we arrive at a conclusion. But most days we make decisions along the way. And we make decisions that we hope are faithful to our covenant partner. But most days when we make those decisions, we know that on another day, in another circumstance, we would make another decision. But you may want to talk. Conclusion, what I really am arguing about is that I believe that the pastors of the church and then the whole church, if Uber and Bart are right, I think they are, that the pastors of the church must make an outrageous act of subversive rationality that you cannot conduct ministry on the basis of the dominant rationality of our culture. Because if you do, there isn't any good news. Now, I think that, I don't know what you are taught about preaching, but the place where I notice it in preaching is long sermon introductions. Long sermon introductions are basically designed to assure the congregation that I'm not going to say anything that doesn't fit with everything you already thought. <laughs> the wonderful thing about Karl Barth's sermons is they don't have any introductions. He <laughs> starts. And the very first sentence he utters calls the whole world into question.
So what I think those of us in theological colleges and ministry have to think through continually is how do we maintain the courage and the vulnerability and freedom so that we can continue to be open to an epistemology that the people around us would not credit. That could be pretty apocalyptic. I want to suggest to you that the character of our future humans hangs in the balance on that courage and vulnerability and freedom. Because if people in our kind of society are not invited into another rationality, we shall be destroyed either by the bomb or by despair. I think people who are about to be ordained in their ministry are entrusted with many things. <clears throat> but the most unthinkable thing we are entrusted with is this strange new... Sorry, you lose the, lost, lose the last word. The strange new world of the Bible. Um, the phrase from Karl Barth that, uh, that came in the bit that I played you on Monday. Um, that we are entrusted with the sharing this, um, the contents, the nature of this strange new world um, that the Bible describes. Um, I think that one of the biggest challenges uh, of ministry in the church in the United States in 2009 and onwards um, is the need to share the difference between that strange new world of the Bible uh, and what the church thinks. Because the church is assimilated to the culture, um, and that wasn't too bad 50 years or so ago, uh, but the culture has moved so far away from uh, anything Christian that the fact that the church is still identified, the, the culture has moved so far away from a Christian way of looking at things, uh, and that means that the identification of the church with the culture um, is, uh, makes us, puts us more and more in the position that Israel was in in Jeremiah's day, um, in its assimilation with its culture. Um, and that makes the pastor's job um, harder than ever, and it makes it even more impossible than it has ever been for, a, for the pastor to be a prophet. Uh, because uh, to, be, to be a prophet, to tell the truth uh, in this kind of area... Uh, is to say something quite different from what um, the church in general thinks. And you can't do that because your salary depends on saying things uh, that the church is going to find acceptable. Um, so you really do have a challenge. Um, I, I'm, I think uh, uh, one of the ways in which, or one aspect of, the, of that or something in relation to the culture... He, he, he says he chooses the example of the Sabbath to talk about and says maybe it's an easy example. The more I think about it, the more I think it's a really tough example uh, because the notion of Sabbath works so radically against uh, at the culture. 
Uh, and, and so that has actually become one of the, um, the sharp ends of the ways in which uh, the strange new world of the Bible confronts um, the culture. Uh, not, um, and, and it thereby illustrates the process that he's talking about and that I want to talk about some more uh, in talking about the law today. That is, uh, we need to know what to do today, what God wants us to do today. Uh, and the contents of what you read in the Torah, or for that matter what you read in the Sermon on the Mount or in Paul's letters, are very significant for us uh, understanding what we, what we need to do today. But what we need to do today isn't necessarily the same as what it says there. Well, it couldn't be because, as some of you noticed um, in your postings, this is a bit bewildering because these different parts of the Torah say different things about the same issues. So people, one or two people asked um, with bemusement, well, are these laws from God? Because if all these laws from God and they contradict each other, you can't obey them all. God is setting you up to inevitably to, uh, uh, to disobey some by obeying some others. But um, when, when you see the nature of the process that's going on uh, in the development of these laws, then you begin to, begin to see that as something of a solution rather than something of a problem. That is, uh, within the Torah, and then subsequently uh, in Old and New Testaments, Brueggemann is showing, you have um, people, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reflecting on the things that God has said before about what people ought to do, and reformulating what the community needs to do in different historical and social contexts. So... Um, they thereby provide us sometimes with concrete examples of what uh, we need to do with regard, for instance, to Sabbath. But sometimes what they do is rather model a process. So you look at what's going on with, say, the reinterpretation of Sabbath, uh, and, uh, and then uh, seek the Holy Spirit's guidance for the, the leap, the intuitive leap, that enables you to see what's the significance of Sabbath now. Um, and... I think I know what it is. I, mean, I think I, I suggested to you how it, it so confronts our 24-7, 365 attitude um, and, and the importance of um, working all the time and of, making, of, of, of consumerism and making money. The Sabbath notion confronts all of those. Now, it didn't do that, at least didn't regularly do that, uh, within the Old Testament. But the, the process whereby that this inspired word of God comes to affect us um, is by us perceiving with the help of the Holy Spirit what's the significance now for Sabbath, for instance. I'm going to talk about another example of that in a minute, but um, there were a few other things that um, out of the postings that I, that I wanted to comment on in relation to those things that Brigham has just said. Um, Well, for instance, the question, if the laws are contradictory, which one do you follow? Well, we don't have to follow any of them. Uh, all of them are examples of things that God was prepared to say in different contexts, so they um, stimulate us into seeing what kind of thing God might be saying now. They aren't applicable to all, to all times and places, and therefore differences, contradiction is the wrong word to use about them, really. <coughs> Um, because different things need to be said in different places. 
Um, why does the Torah spread them all out rather than make them part of one book? I take that to mean, why isn't the Torah more systematic? That would make it easier, wouldn't it? Um, and I presume... I'm not, I don't think I know what the answer is. I'm not sure I know what the answer is, but it's, the same, it's an example of the same phenomenon uh, as the church preserving four gospels separately um, and not uh, turning them into one gospel. That would, be, that would save some problems, wouldn't it, if it's just one gospel? But then you'd lose something of the dynamic um, uh, of the way that God uh, was at work and the way in which God's word needs to be spoken in different contexts. And I guess the same is true about the Torah. Um, that what you have here is several examples of the way in which God spoke to different contexts. And evidently the Holy Spirit thought, thought, thought that that would be help, more helpful to us than giving us a kind of systematic ethics, systematic theology, which by its very nature then would be kind of contextless. Um, some particular examples, apparently, God thought, would be, would be more helpful to us um, than a systematized version of something. Uh, what about the order of these books, somebody asked. Um, some, somebody observed sharply. Well, Exodus, the Exodus laws are, are, are more chaotic and kind of more primitive than the Leviticus and Deuteronomy ones. They look later. Um, it, it's usually assumed that the order is the Exodus ones are the oldest, the Deuteronomy ones next, and the Leviticus ones last. Um, a number of Jewish scholars over the past generation or two uh, have um, questioned... The, the notion that Leviticus came last uh, and have suggested plausibly that uh, a reason why the dominant critical view reckons that Leviticus comes re- re- reckons that Leviticus um, is, the, is the last of the um, law codes in, the, in chronological order is that as Protestants we don't like Leviticus uh, it's nasty and Catholic and ritualistic and things like that so it isn't the real thing. The real thing is the earlier stuff. Leviticus isn't. It's the later stuff. Predictably, in a way, well, not, well, well maybe in a way, yeah. Um, uh, Jewish scholars will, would would be capable of turning that on its head, not be putting off by the ritual concern, the the worship concern, the ceremonial concern of Leviticus. Um, I think myself, um, it's probably um, more illuminating. To, to see Leviticus and Deuteronomy in parallel rather than that one is dependent, one is earlier or later than the other. And again, as one or two other people pointed out, the Leviticus, the concerns of Leviticus, look as if they are the kind of things that concern Levites. Well, that's a surprise, isn't it? Leviticus, Levites. Um, they, they concern ministry sort of people, uh, priestly sort of people. Um, and so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if in Leviticus and Deuteronomy you've got two. Uh, reworkings, rethinkings of the kind of issues that are raised by Exodus itself, um, done not necessarily very differently in date, but done in different circles. So that Leviticus is thinking things through from a priestly perspective, and Deuteronomy is thinking things through maybe from a more prophetic perspective, but both of them giving you um, illuminating angles um, on the issues that they talk about. I love that, um, that bit about long sermon introductions. I think that's a masterpiece of an insight. Uh, and I commend uh, that to you. Get straight into the sermon and hit them between the eyes. Uh, what I want to do now is to uh, talk about tithing 
as another example of the same phenomenon um, that Brigham has talked about in referring to Sabbath. Uh, and so I'm on page 105 in my, I think in my, 106 in my numbers, says at the top, lending, jubilee, tithing. Is that 106 in your numbers? Oh, good, okay. Uh, tithing is the, um, uh, is, is, will provide the particular, particularly uh, parallel example to the, the Sabbath one, but against the background, let me talk about uh, a bit about lending and about Jubilee too. Um, Exodus 22 uh, lays down the outrageous expectation uh, that, uh, lend, that when you lend somebody, to, when, you, when, when you make a loan to somebody, uh, you don't impose interest, you don't um, take interest from it. Now, that already is subverting the entire foundation of our economy. Um, because that depends upon lending in order to make money. Uh, Exodus um, shows very li- virtually no interest in that kind of process. It's really interested in lending um, as a means whereby uh, you uh, help somebody else. So you don't impose interest on poor members of my people, says Exodus 22. It's the, the very fact that it talks about poor people shows it's not referring to commercial loans. Except that in our context, uh, loads and loads of money is being made by credit companies all the time by lending to poor people, to people already in debt at outrageous uh, rates of interest. You can imagine successful Israelite farmers may be borrowing in order to enlarge their herds, but that's not what the Old Testament is talking about. It's presupposing a situation in which, for instance, uh, the harvest has failed um, and a farmer needs to borrow in order to feed his family for the next year and or to be able to, to have grain to sow for the next year. Um, and uh, it warns you about the stance you take uh, in relation to my people, says God. So just be careful, it's my people you're messing around with. Um, a second passage in the um, Torah uh, uh, in Leviticus 25 uh, then expands on the point in Exodus uh, and it um, re- significantly refers to the poor person as your brother and it refers to the need in the way in which you go about lending to revere God. It also includes reference to lending food uh, which makes more explicit the kind of problem that of a poor harvest that the text is designed to regulate. Uh, the passages then um, in Leviticus urge you to let your brother live with you as a resident alien. That is, uh, with some, uh, to live with you as somebody who can maintain himself, even though he's had to forfeit his land. People who are doing well uh, are expected to lend freely to the needy, and they accept payment in the form of labour, um, or the eventual repayment of the debt uh, in money that the person had earned through their labour. So the debtor uh, seeks to work his way back to, fault, to being solvent by committing himself to indentured labour for a set period or to paid employment in relation to somebody who'd got land um, and whose farm uh, hadn't, wasn't in trouble. Uh, that, all that links with the questions about slavery servitude, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, Deuteronomy 23 then makes explicit that people mustn't impose interest on any form of loan uh, in money or in kind um, it's, uh, but it does also make explicit that Israelites are allowed to impose interest when they're lending to a foreigner 
And that's an example of a number of obligations that didn't apply uh, to, to foreigners in the way that they did to Israelites. Um, maybe the idea is, is to allow commercial loans to um, local Canaanites or foreigners who are involved in trade. Maybe it refers to resident aliens who didn't want to take up uh, full membership of Israel. Or maybe it's a purely theoretical rule. Permitting loans to non-Israelites uh, at interest is a way of underlying the prohibition on loans at interest to nearly all the people that anybody would ever be asked to make a loan to. So those are the, the passages in the, um, in the Torah about lending. Um, they fit with um, the way that Jesus urges his followers to lend to anybody who asks for a loan. Um, and as I said, uh, for sake of argument, uh, we might grant that if I want to buy a car or develop my company, um, somebody's got a right to charge me interest on a loan. Uh, but it is a problem that we've come to think about lending um, uh, purely in commercial terms like that. And scripture invites us to think about it in a different way. The focus of the scriptural material in connection with lending uh, is on the predicament of needy people. If you've got more money than, uh, than, than you need, then you lend it to people in that kind of way. It's, not, it's a way in which you care for the needy, not a way in which you make money. That's the way that the haves share with the have-nots. Lending is a means uh, of being a blessing. Um, then Sabbath year and Jubilee. What happened with regard to uh, Jubilee uh, illustrates that process of something having new, new significance in different um, contexts. Uh, the the um, Jubilee requirement in Leviticus 25 um, starts uh, from the way that farmers are to observe a Sabbath year uh, so that once every seven years they don't sow any crops in their fields. And that's a way of acknowledging that the land belongs to God. Um, Exodus 23, uh, harness that instinct uh, into a practice that could uh, benefit the needy. Uh, Leviticus 25, in it, the way it talks about the Jubilee, take that takes that further. Um, the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year were both designed to take things back to square one in some way. Generally, when somebody got into economic difficulty, uh, then um, their first obligation to help them rested within their extended family. Uh, you're the nearest relative is somebody who's under moral ob obligation to come to your help if you're in need like that, uh, and thus to act as your redeemer. The aim was to get things back to square one. So in the Sabbath year, people who had been forced um, by hardship to hire themselves out as servants to somebody else uh, were to become free. Uh, in the Jubilee year, people who had been forced by hardship to rent their land to somebody else were to receive their land back. An underlying principle uh, is the assumption that, um, that is shared, for instance, by the Navajo and other Native Americans, that you can't own land. Now, there's another revolutionary notion. You can own buildings because you make them, but land belongs to God. Uh, Leviticus um, recognises the 
selfishness that makes people that would make people resist the jubilee principle. Um, so again, it reminds them to revere God, um, and uh, reminds them about this being a way in which they care for for their brothers and sisters, other members of the family. Now, there's no indication within the Old Testament um, that uh, Israel ever did observe the Sabbath year uh, or that it ever observed the Jubilee year. Um, That might only resemble the way in which Christians haven't usually implemented the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Though that analogy might also indicate that Israel may not have been simply being disobedient. When Jesus told people to cut off their hands, he probably didn't mean it. Uh, And there are other examples uh, of the Torah, uh, of the teaching of the Torah that wasn't implemented. And the implication may be, as I've suggested already, that people knew that this was a vision rather than a policy. Um, The Torah isn't a law book, it's something more like a vision. That doesn't mean it isn't to be taken seriously any more than when Jesus talks about cutting off your hand. But it means that the scripture is the Torah is offering you a vivid picture. Um, the, the problems that the Jubilee vision were designed to handle uh, reappear in Nehemiah chapter 5 uh, when evidently Moses' teaching about lending was being comprehensively ignored. Um, and so Nehemiah, um, it doesn't talk about the Jubilee, but it's, it, it's, Nehemiah does something that's of a kind of Jubilee kind. Apart from Nehemiah 5, um, uh, we know of three occasions in Scripture, uh, in scriptural times, when people did take the Jubilee vision and apply it in a fresh way in their context, a bit in the way that um, Brueggemann then talks about the Sabbath. First, and they're the passages that appear in the bracket on my sheet. Uh, First, there's Isaiah 61, where the prophet testifies to having been called by God to proclaim release to captives. That's the, uh, the, the word release that comes there is the word that comes in Leviticus to describe what happens in the Jubilee. And those are the only two places that the word comes in the Old Testament. But now, the captives that, that Isaiah 61 proclaims release for are the people of Judah who are oppressed and depressed as a result of the devastation of Jerusalem and the decimation of its population. So the whole people and the whole land are in a position like that of individuals who become impoverished through bad harvests and have lost their land. So what Isaiah 61 is doing is taking the vision, the Jubilee vision, and uh, making it something to picture uh, what God is going to do for the whole people. Uh, Then there is 11Q Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek? Well, lo and behold, here he comes again. Um, the, um, the, the, The Melchizedek prophecy is one of the Qumran documents um, and the way in which references to the Qumran documents work is that that queue in front, of, in front of Melchizedek on my sheet means it's a Qumran document, and the 11 before the queue means it comes from it came from it was discovered in Cave 11. Uh, so the Melchizedek document is a Qumran document from Qumran Cave 11. Cave 11, it's 11 Q Melchizedek. Now uh, that prophecy explicitly puts together Leviticus 25, the Jubilee. Uh, regulation and Deuteronomy 15 the um, Sabbath year regulation and Isaiah 61 
uh, and promises that uh, in the last days, which the Qumran guys uh, know are about to come about, people will be released from their sins. So again, it's taken up that, um, that, that idea of the Jubilee idea, but taken it in a new direction in talking about release from sins instead of release from poverty. In Luke 4 then, when Jesus picks up uh, the um, prophecy in Isaiah 61, Jesus is doing the same thing as the Qumran guys. He, Jesus too is saying, the last days have arrived. Um, and, and, and he is bringing about another embodiment of that ministry that's described in Isaiah 61. He's talking about release. If you look for the release that he brings about in his ministry, then uh, it's released from illness um, and demonic oppression and also from guilt, as the Qumran guys um, themselves thought. So there you've got in uh, Leviticus and Nehemiah um, and Isaiah 61 and 11Q Melchizedek and Luke chapter 4, um, you've got the idea of there being a special occasion when release is proclaimed being applied in different contexts uh, when believers of vision uh, saw people in bondage in different senses and saw that as God's moment for their release. You've got a, a, an interpretive process going on with regard to those ideas. Now you see that, I think, um, uh, in the way that the Old Testament talks about tithing. Uh, it, the, the Bible talks about tithing more often than it talks about jubilee. Um, but it does so in a way that instructively parallels the way that it talks about Jubilee. Uh, from Genesis to Malachi and on into the New Testament, uh, tithing is a norm. But the point about tithing keeps changing. The practice doesn't change, but the aim of tithing uh, and the meaning of tithing are worked out anew in different contexts, different connections. So tithing starts in Genesis 14, um, the passage that we've read where Abraham goes off to rescue uh, Lot, gains loads of uh, plunder in the process, um, gets uh, blessed by Melchizedek uh, when he comes back, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the plunder uh, that he has um, found, that he has gained. Now, uh, we haven't been told that Abraham was told to do that. We haven't been told. We're not told that Ab Melchizedek evidently isn't surprised when he doesn't say, "What's this about?" Then it looks very much as if, like sacrifice in Genesis four, tithing isn't something which comes as a special revelation from God. Um, it's something that's um, a human instinct. It's part of general revelation, and so what God does um, is harness uh, a natural human instinct and instruct people to express it in a certain way. Abraham knows that tithing is a human thing to do, as faithfulness or justice or love or worship or prayer are human things to do. People are made that way. He can assume that the king of Salem understands that too. When God gives you something, you recognize where it came, where it came from by giving some of it back to God. Tithing comes next in Genesis 28 in the story of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is um, on his way out of the land of promise, uh, on the run from Esau, having swindled him of his birthright. God appears to him and promises to keep him safe and bring him back to the land. Jacob says, well, if you're going to look after me like that, 
then you can be my God, and I'll give you a tenth of everything that you give me. Jacob, you see, is the great calculator, uh, and there's surely an irony here. You give me everything, and I'll give you a tenth back. That's fair, isn't it? Tithing can be a means of, dulge, of indulging in our instinct to calculate, a means of being selfish. The first time God gives some instruction about tithing is in Leviticus 27. Um, and they constituted a warning about how we may try to evade the demand of tithing. Uh, in the context, there's talk about redeeming a tithe, and one or two people wanted, didn't understand what that was about. Um, what that's about is something like, uh, supposing that you um, didn't manage to harvest a huge amount of grain this year, and so it would, be, it would feel a hardship to um, give a tenth of it to God. But supposing that you've got left over from last year, you've got some profit, as it were, some silver, some, some uh, uh, assets left over from, from last year, you can redeem the tithe by giving the money that you've got to God uh, instead of giving the tithe of the actual grain. That's allowed. Uh, but then um, there's a question, the question that's raised by Leviticus in effect uh, is the way in which you tithe animals is by giving up every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's staff. What happens if your best sheep happens to be the tenth? Can you substitute this one that's only got three legs uh, for your best sheep? No. It's like those restaurants in which there are no substitutions allowed. Beware of evading the, com the, 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 the demand of tithing. Uh, and note that tithing is an expectation. You can't claim any credit for tithing. There are other forms of giving us that, as it were, express your love um, and thankfulness and warm feeling towards God. Tithing doesn't. It's just the thing you, you have to do. And beware of evading its command. What happens to tithes? The next passage in Numbers um, gives one answer. Tithing is a means of seeing that the ministry is supported. Because tithes go uh, to the clan of Levi, uh, and that makes it possible for them to look after the services in the sanctuary. Um, the Levites haven't got any land that they can farm, therefore they're not going to have anything to eat. Um, and so they get a tithe of the um, land, the produce, uh, of the rest of the clans so that they can do that work on behalf of the rest of the clans in the sanctuary. Tithing is a means of supporting the ministry. Deuteronomy 14 also um, says that the tithes go to the Levites, uh, but it adds a, a special uh, provision for every third year. And I think what that means is the calendar is divided in, uh, into seven-year periods, so there's year one and year two are regular years, then there's a, then there's a third year, then there are two more regular years, years four and five. And then there's another third year, the sixth. Uh, and then there's the Sabbath year. After that, the cycle starts again. And in the third year, the tithes are to benefit not only Levites, uh, but also um, immigrants, resident aliens, and orphans, and widows. Because they are in the same position as uh, Levites uh, in not having land from which to gain their livelihood. Now, the question is, okay, they got lots and lots in years three and six if people did what they were supposed to do. Excuse me, do they starve in years one, two, four, and five? Um, 
well, maybe that's another example of how these are more kind of God-given dreams, visions, uh, than God-given policies. Uh, and you'd have to work out in practice how to implement the nature of the vision. In uh, Beyond the Torah, in Joshua to Kings, there's one reference to tithing, and it's a solemn one. If you insist on having kings, Samuel warns Israel, you'll pay for it literally. Kings will take a tithe of your grain and your vines and your sheep for their staff. Now it's not clear whether Samuel is warning them that the king um, will add a second tithe to the first to pay for the costs of having the monarchy, um, or whether he's saying that the king will appropriate the tithes that were due uh, to the ministry and the needy. But either way, it's bad news. It's an indication that tithing can be a means of the leadership oppressing ordinary people. Um, Amos chapter 4. Implies that people were being uh, faithful in tithing. Uh, The um, Nehemiah passage I've referred to shows that wasn't always the case. But Amos probably implies they were um, faithful in tithing as they were faithful in worship. But their giving wasn't matched by a commitment to faithfulness within the community. Because obviously if you're well off, it's easy to tithe. Uh, So uh, Amos says sarcastically, Come to Bethel and transgress. In other words, come to the worship. Come and enjoy the the festival um, and disobey God. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Not uh, just every three years. So you love to do. But uh, in the context, Amos is then um, critical about the rest of their lives. Some believers lived in fine homes, had good incomes, enjoyed a cultured life. Uh, but they thus benefited from the fact that the way that society worked made other believers much uh, more poorly off. They could afford to tithe and still be well off. So their tithing has become one of the ways that they they avoided God's lordship of their lives. Uh, And then finally there's Malachi uh, chapter 3 with its promises about tithing, um, which is pastor's favourite text. Um, Because pastors need people to tithe, in order to be able to keep the church and the pastors themselves going. Um, And that's not wholly wrong, because the um, tithes uh, were uh, given in part for the um, support of the Levites, of the ministry, as it were. Um, But it's significant that that's the context in which we most hear about tithing. Uh, And uh, it's commonly assumed uh, that you tithe and you give that to the church, and you mustn't do anything else. I don't see any basis in the Old Testament for saying that all your tithes have to be given to the local church. Your tithing, um, uh, a number of those ways of of dealing, of using tithes, uh, would work in a different sort of connection. So here is a practice, um, the practice of tithing, which like the practice of Sabbath, is something that runs all the way through um, the scriptures. But what tithing is for and what it means keeps changing Um, and therefore when we think about tithing we have to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance to see what I'm sure that God wants us still to tithe but what might God want us to use tithing for now 
Now, maybe God wants us to use tithing in order to keep our churches cool or warm, as, uh, um, as we may, de- may need them to be, and in order to pay the um, pastor's salary so that we can have a sermon to listen to. But then you realise that tithing is simply a way of paying for services that you're receiving. It isn't a way of, of giving for somebody else at all. Um, maybe we have to think about tithing uh, being used in some different sort of way. For instance, supposing that we were to tithe for the nourishment and education and basic health care and health education in the two-thirds world. And then we done, when we've done that, we could give some extra, if we also want church to be cool or warm, then we could give some extra for that. Um, but maybe tithing ought to be a thing that goes in a different connection of that kind. Maybe. Uh, it wouldn't be um, surprising, I think, if something like that was appropriate. Um, if we did want to uh, have our churches ambient, uh, as well as be able to, to give to the needs of the two-thirds world, then it would mean that we had to cut down our standard of living, and that wouldn't do any harm. Uh, and that might help us to model to the world that um, the number of things you can buy in the stores is naturally the thing that makes your life uh, fulfilling. Um, and it might be that if we did tithe in that sort of way, then that promise in Malachi 3 about the way that God's blessing would be poured out because we're honouring God, uh, we would find, find fulfilled. <coughs> Maybe. But I'm not a prophet. I'm just guessing. <laughs> the process of interpretation is the thing I want you to, to note, to see how the uh, way in which Sabbath gets reinterpreted through Scripture and tithing gets reinterpreted through Scripture uh, provides part of the answer to the question, how, d- how do we, al- along with the kind of processes going on between, in those columns between Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, shows you something of how uh, the, the Holy Spirit may expect us to learn Uh, from the teaching in the Pentateuch. The process, as much as the content, is important. Uh, If if we are to um, come to see what the scriptures have got to say to us. Um, Anybody want to say anything about any of that? Hello? Well, how do you square the awareness that we have um, that uh, we shouldn't commit adultery with the fact that a a third or a half or whatever of the people do it? I didn't say monogamy, I said adultery, I think, didn't I? Uh, I think most cultures have reckoned, n- nearly all cultures, 
um, have, have, have worked with an assumption that there are committed relationships between men, between, between a man and a woman. It might be a man and several women, or it might be a woman and several men, but that there is such a thing, something like marriage, um, and that uh, sexual relationships within that bond are okay, and that sexual relationships with, outside that bond are not. Um, uh, that's as it were has been the theory, but the practice has nevertheless been um, that uh, that people don't don't live that way. Um, so, uh, and the same would be true about theft or murder or lots of other things. Um, the, there isn't um, that it's called sin. There is a difference between what we know we're supposed to do and what we do. So you got another question. Equally, oh, there's no, there's no indication that resident aliens are tr- no, no, they're, they're all treated uh, on the same on the same basis. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. Okay, uh, now let me pick up one or two other things out of the postings. Uh, in the last ten minutes before we break, um, um, let me start off talking by talking about slavery. Um, it, it, most of the people who came to the Americas between the 16th century uh, and the 16th and 17th centuries um, came from Europe uh, and came as indentured servants. Uh, they were, uh, for the most part, then pre- people who who felt they had got no future. Uh, in England or somewhere else in Europe. Um, and one of the reasons why they'd got no future is that they'd got no money, no, no job. Um, and so they, they came here uh, on the basis of being given a passage across the Atlantic, which they would then pay for by being uh, indentured servants for seven years after they came. I don't know anything. I mean, what, who am I to stand here saying this? But that's roughly right, isn't it? You don't know either. Didn't you do this kind of thing at school? Uh, yes, you did. Or yes, I'm right. Or both. Both. Okay. Um, in subsequent centuries, uh, of course, then, uh, a large number of people were, br- were brought here against their will uh, because they were captured from Africa um, by people from uh, England um, and brought here um, and turned into not indentured servants who would serve for six or seven years and then be free, because um, they'd paid for the thing that they'd had, but people who were going to become uh, permanent slaves, um, owned by somebody else, uh, with nothing by way of human rights um, and no prospect of freedom uh, and being extremely ill-treated. The problem that we have in understanding the, the Torah is that the model for us understanding uh, the position of people in servitude in the Torah is one that we get from African-American slavery rather than from uh, European um, indentured service. Um, And it's actually the first form, that first form of servitude, which provides you with a model for understanding what was the nature of servitude in Israel, not the second. It's the the indentured uh, labour form of servitude. Uh, not the chattel slavery that, uh, that is the kind of um, that provides you with a model for understanding how 
servitude worked in Israel. It's um, a terrible shame, and I don't know why it happened, that, that whereas, for the, uh, generally speaking, the King James Bible translates, talks about servants or bonds, bond servants, um, the modern translations talk about slaves. Uh, there isn't... Uh, there, there, there's, whereas European languages have two words, one that means servant and one that means slave, Hebrew only has one word, uh, the word ebed, and that's significant in itself because uh, the, uh, the notion of slavery as we uh, uh, think of it and as African Americans experienced it, um, courtesy of um, Britain and, and America, uh, is, uh, di- didn't exist in the Middle East, not just in Israel, but nor did it exist anywhere else. Um, it's, it's, it's only been a European notion. Uh, so in the ancient world, um, it was um, Greece and Rome that had slaves. The Middle Eastern peoples didn't have slaves. Um, uh, at least, uh, nothing, not, n- no, they didn't have slaves. Um, they had uh, servants who, who might be servants for life, um, and they had indentured servants who were servants, uh, or debt servants, who, who would spend six years working off a debt in the way that people in the Americas spend six years working off a debt uh, after they'd had their passage to the Americas. Now, uh, and the, the reasons that took people into that servitude were, were quite similar to the ones that took people into that indentured service in the 16th, 17th centuries. That is, they were, they, they were people in the case of uh, Israelites, or for that matter in um, Mesopotamia, um, whose farm had failed, uh, and so had nothing to eat for next year. Um, and um, so, a, as a first stage, then a farmer would um, uh, get uh, his son or daughter to be a servant of another family, to work for them, and thereby get some, and thereby to get. Um, fed, looked after, uh, and as a last resort, um, that, that man, the, the farmer, uh, would himself become a servant. But he'd do it that way around, not because he didn't care about his kids, but because if, uh, if he put his kids into servitude, there's a chance then that he may be able to um, get the family back on its feet. But if he goes into servitude, then there's no future for anybody. The practice then of indentured servitude um, is uh, a, a way of making it possible for people who've got into a mess. Possibly it's their own fault because they were lazy, but possibly it's not their own fault. It was just their bad luck with regard to their particular piece of land. It makes it possible for them to be able to um, get back on their feet as a family with the help of other people within their community who will take them on. Maybe somebody else within their community who simply was more lucky, but maybe somebody else within their community who is either a better farmer uh, or uh, who uh, works harder. Uh, but whatever is the kind of logic of that, the system uh, has the potential to make it possible for people to be able to get back uh, on their feet. The, the system involve, does involve some compromise between the needs of the person who's become poor and the person who's going to take them on. Um, the person who's got to take them on uh, is doing that as an act of mercy, but let's be realistic, you, um, the, the, the needs, um, the interests of that person need to be taken into account. Uh, and, so that, and that's reflected in the nature of the laws, which are concerned to protect the servant in such a way as, um, uh, w- without making it so um, 
unrewarding for somebody to take on uh, servants that nobody would do it. There are lots of examples within the Old Testament of permanent servants. Um, One of the great examples is the guy that Abraham sends off to find a son for Isaac. Now, uh, the modern translations, just just to confuse us, describe him as a servant. But it, he's, he's just another Ebed, um, in the same way uh, as the, the people who are translated uh, as slaves uh, in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy are. He is the kind of person who is a slave for life, um, uh, something that these laws refer to, a servant for life. Uh, but he's evidently somebody who is fully a member of the family, um, fully a member of the community of faith, um, in, uh, in that story uh, of Abraham and finding a wife for Isaac, somebody with a huge trust in his master, Abraham, and who, in whom uh, his master has huge trust. Uh, so the, st- the stories about servants, like, st- like stories that come in, for instance, in the Elijah story, uh, need to help us to reframe, that we think, that reframe the way we think uh, about servitude and see that it actually has... A, has um, offers ways of coping with issues that arise in cultures and economies that we are hopeless at. Being a servant in Israel um, was a much less, at least potentially, a much less tough kind of experience um, than being a Mexican labourer, being the the guy who makes it possible for you to have strawberries for 99 cents from Ralph's this week. That's not an advertisement. Um, uh, or, for that matter, ways of coping with the, um, the, down, the implications of the downturn and of unemployment and things, things like that. One of its assumptions is that the, the natural um, way to organise work is that everybody works for themselves. You don't have bosses. You don't have employers and employees. Now, there's a revolution for you. Um, the, the, the ideal is, this, here's a family, they have a farm, that's the working unit. Um, the, um, that, 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 that working unit, uh, then there's nobody working for anybody. Everybody is simply working for the family. When necessary, that can be adapted so that the family can be a means of absorbing, um, meeting the needs of, exercising hospitality to some resident aliens, widows, orphans, and the the, the family from the next part of the village who's, who've um, done badly this year in the harvest. Um, uh, but the idea that then the family in the next, uh, next along in the village come to be your servants um, for a period of years uh, is analogous to, coming, to, becoming, to becoming an employee. In other words, uh, ebed is almost a wor- the word for an employer, for an employee. Uh, but what the Torah recognises is that the idea of working for somebody else is, is really it's a weird idea. It's a second best idea. Uh, the, the ideal is for people to be working in families uh, do, uh, fulfilling God's purpose in the world. Now, if you can reframe the way you think about servitude in that sort of way, um, then it helps a lot of these laws to make more sense than they immediately do, particularly on the one hand because of the use of the word slavery uh, in the translations and on the other because our understanding of what slavery is is shaped by our, by our knowledge of um, the nature of chattel uh, slavery in the African-American experience um, here. 
Anybody want to ask anything about that? Mm -hmm. um, I, read, I read some passages where God says, like, to restore, if you're a Hebrew national, you, you get to become, you know, get your land back and whatever. But if you're a foreigner, you know, you don't. What's the difference? Well, you didn't have a land. No, because you didn't have a land. I mean, whatever there's a reason you're a foreigner here, you're, you, you're, you're simply in a totally different position from a member of Israel who had some land who has who now given it up. Um, I imagine it's still. Uh, as, as I was saying about um, in some other connect about lending, uh, that the question of foreign uh, servants uh, would be very much of a minority. Well, it is in the in the Torah. It is. It's a very small issue. Uh, the the big issue is what ha here. Here you are in this village. Um, things have gone wrong with a particular family in this village. How are you going to cope with it? The question of foreign servants is, would would be a very uh, trivial question, I imagine. But but it's right that. Um, uh, foreign servants were liable to be um, in servitude for life unless they could find a way well they've got to find a way of raising the money to buy themselves free yeah. uh, I'll take one more and then we ought to split really because it's 721 yeah go on yeah, it seemed a little strange to me the idea of if a servant was married before yeah. uh, that, that the wife would go with him if he was set free but if he was married Right. Well, if the if the wife if uh, if the wife belonged was part of the household of the um, the master, then um, as it were, the, this this new servant can't kind of hijack her. He needs to be aware of that. So he needs to. Uh, if if you know that's the basic rule, then you're not going to get married to a woman in that household because you know, unless you can negotiate it, that you don't have the right to take her. Okay, we'll have a break now and uh, back in 20 minutes.